Welcome to a new episode of Pasha. My name is Ines Kosana. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode comes from the Conversation Weekly podcast. This podcast focuses on recovery from COVID-19 and how it can be a catalyst for change. Is it possible for COVID-19 to help us shape a better world? To get us started, Gemma Weir, editor and co-host of the podcast, asked our guest Ian Golden to describe himself and what he does. I'm Ian Golden. I'm the Professor of Globalization and Development at the University of Oxford. Um, before that, I was Head of Policy at the World Bank Group. And before that, I was advisor to Nelson Mandela and ran the Development Bank of Southern Africa. Uh, so I'm a new academic and uh, have been an academic for my life and uh, very interested in many issues. But at the moment, I'm most interested in how we can make the pandemic create good things and have good outcomes. Uh, and that's the focus of Rescue, my new book. The subtitle is From Global Crisis to a Better World. And I certainly hope that we get that from the pandemic after all the terrible suffering. You know, you've got this hopeful outlook for your book, but how good, bad, average have societies been in the past at learning lessons from disasters and creating a more hopeful and better world after them? The evidence is rather mixed. We do at times learn. And, you know, what I focus on a lot in the book is how the Second World War transformed the world uh, in many ways. It led to the creation of the United Nations, of the Bretton Woods institutions, of the Marshall Plan, of the welfare state. Uh, and the world after the Second World War was very different uh, to that before it. Uh, but it also reflects the fact that many of the people that lived through the horrors of the Second World War had also experienced the horrors of the First World War. And there, the lessons were not learned. And there was a cycle, a devastating cycle, of the Great Depression, the rise of fascism, and an even worse war. And so the key question for me is, how do we make sure that we do, do learn from this and don't repeat the mistakes of the past? Because I guess there's a there's difference between rebuilding and recovering and making a better world and making that world one that could prevent a future catastrophe of the same kind. So, I mean, I think your book focuses on pandemics and how actually this COVID-19 was preventable because there have been pandemics and epidemics of, of similar nature that we just haven't learnt from. Is that is that fair to say? Yes, we certainly haven't learnt uh, on the pandemic front. There have been lots of near misses in the century alone, you know, since the turn of the millennia, SARS, avian influenza, uh, Ebola, and others, and we just haven't learned uh, from them. And it's, you know, it really is a tragedy that we devote less attention to pandemics uh, than we do to, say, the military expenditure, which is a thousand times or more bigger than our expenditure on pandemic prevention. When anyone that knows about these things will tell you that pandemics present a far greater threat to us. The book actually is much more wide-ranging, though, than focusing on pandemics. The book covers 13 different issues, like the future of cities, the future of work, the relationship between young and old, governments, business, politics, uh, globalization. So it's a very wide-ranging book that's trying to look at how the pandemic has shifted these things and how all these different dimensions of our lives and societies and 
the world, including globalization and global governance, are likely to evolve. There's one chapter called Stopping Future Crises, which is devoted to not only stopping pandemics, which we need desperately to do, but also the other crises we face, like climate change. And you've worked in the heart of the international system and I'm sure with lots of governments and, and bilateral relationships. So why are our leaders kind of inherently bad at planning for systemic risks and I guess at taking warning signs seriously? What stops them doing that? That's a very important um, question and I think there are many explanations for it. One is that um, they tend to be short term. Uh, particularly in democracies, um, you know, they've got a very short span horizon, two, three, four, five years at most. And so they don't like investing resources and energy in the unknown that might or might not happen. And we've seen that in the ridiculously low amounts of attention that are given to, for example, stockpiling PPE equipment or, or others. I think there's also um, the fact that they, they are very strongly lobbied uh, by vested interests that want to make money out of certain areas. And I think that's certainly the, one of the reasons we have such big investments in military, uh, because the power of the military, uh, arms manufacturers and others, uh, is so great in lobbying governments. Uh, and the power of those that want to stop pandemic is much weaker. I think there are big issues uh, regarding the fact that it's difficult to know what to do about pandemics. Pandemics are the, the best example we know of something that no one country on its own can stop uh, by their nature. No matter how high a wall you build, um, you're still going to be threatened by a pandemic, unless you really want to seal yourself off like North Korea. Those that believe in, in trade and travel uh, have a problem. And the reason it's so vital uh, that we address them is because it does require coordination. And pandemics are something we need to coordinate with everyone on. A pandemic can come from the poorest country uh, in the world, in the poorest village, but increasingly the threat of pandemic is coming of pandemics is coming from labs, uh, in, which could be in very rich countries. Most of the high-tech labs that work on the most dangerous things are in the richest countries like the US. Uh, and so the threat is really everywhere. And uh, politicians like to be national and local and find it very difficult uh, to be global. And I think that's another reason uh, why we not only need to deal with it, but we need politicians that are prepared to accept that no country is an island. And unless we coordinate with others, we can't have a safe future. So you're optimistic. You say your, your book is, is kind of an optimistic outlook of, of kind of the challenges that this this new world that we're facing will brings and, and across a, a whole range of different sectors. So how do we make sure that this time that we don't repeat the same mistakes and that we do build back better, as, as some government slogans that are putting it, or how after the COVID-19 it will be different? Well, nothing is guaranteed. It all depends what we do. And that's why it's great to do your podcast and to try and, you know, it's a call for action. This is the time. And my fear is that once the pandemic is over and we slip back into the complacency of our normality, and, and we all desperately want to celebrate and see friends and do those things, that, and we should. Uh, but it's important that we recognize that if we just go back to the system we had, we will inevitably have more pandemics. Uh, that could be much worse than this. And we'll have other uh, major crises. The pandemic, far from being a great equaliser, has led to widening inequalities within countries and between countries. 
uh, and increase the risk of, of other crises of, of different types as well, increase the risk of populism and nationalism uh, as a result. And that's the antithesis of what you need to work together. So this is the time for action. There are some very positive signs. What we are seeing now in all countries would have been unimaginable in January 2020. Can you give me some examples? Yeah, conservative governments around the world, uh, not least in the UK, uh, doing what the most progressive leftists could never have proposed in terms of government levels of debt, uh, for example. Governments telling us what to do and we changing our behaviour uh, in ways that would have been unimaginable. If someone had said to me in January 2020, I'm not going to fly for the next two years or year and a half. I would have sort of said, um, <laughs> government can't tell me what to do uh, or when to hug uh, or not. Uh, these sorts of things would have been unimaginable. Another aspect of the human response to the pandemic has been the sacrifices that people have been willing to make to try and make their worlds better. Not only the health workers who are putting their lives on the line, uh, when they go into hospitals and other essential workers, but young people for old, young people giving up their social lives, their education, their job prospects, taking on massive debts to protect elder people. The chances of a young person dying from COVID-19 are minuscule. The reason they're doing all these things voluntarily is out of solidarity for society. So we're seeing these acts of solidarity. We're seeing the extraordinary progress in science uh, with the vaccinations, which is unprecedented as well. We're seeing other hopeful signs like the agreement um, on taxation. Too little, too late. But this is something that's been worked on for a century. That's finally now, you know, happened at the G7. Not enough, but it, that breakthrough would have been impossible in a pre-COVID world. So we're seeing lots of different things happening, which tell us that this time is different that governments are doing things which are different, which individuals are doing things that are different, that society is acting in ways which are different. Um, and that's what we need to harvest. We need to harvest the sense of we can change, governments can change, the old orthodoxy has to be permanently thrown out the window, not temporarily thrown out of the window. We need to take from all of these things the positive lessons and give them momentum uh, and address the terrible negatives that the pandemic uh, has wrought. Uh, you know, vast increases in inequality, the SDG sustainable development goals have been thrown completely off track, derailed by the pandemic. You see what's happening in India, in sub-Saharan Africa, aid has been cut. Uh, you know, for all the positives, there are negatives, but the fact that governments can change, uh, that we can change, to me, is what we really need to now take inspiration from and give, give momentum to. So it's using the disaster and the crisis as a catalyst that continues beyond just kind of the end of this year, but much longer for a structural change. Absolutely. And that's exactly what happened during the Second World War. It wasn't after the Second World War that the United Nations was created. Uh, or the Marshall Plan or the welfare state. It was while the bombs were dropping uh, on the buildings where people were working on these things uh, that people were developing a new world order. And I think that that needs to be a powerful lesson for us, that you can't turn to this 
afterwards. They were fighting a battle on five fronts. In the UK, there was a danger of being invaded. People were building blockhouses just to repel a Nazi invasion. But still, they were creating the welfare state and the United Nations and everything to make sure this never happened again and to envisage the new world. Going from that kind of optimistic uh, view of things, you are also a little bit wary of whether governments and, and the multilateral system, I guess, are able to deal with other big crises that might be coming down the line. So give me a few that you're most worried about and, and why you're worried that why we need to deal with them now rather than wait for them to arrive. Well, pandemics are the biggest threat we face. And, you know, I've been saying since 2014, um, I did this book, The Butterfly Defect, on the systemic risks. Um, I've been saying since 2014 that, that this is the most likely source of a global crisis, uh, both a health crisis and a financial and economic crisis. So that needs to be stay the priority, we, and that requires dramatic action. It can be done. We can stop future pandemics. Uh, there's no technical reason why it can't be done, but it requires a real renewal and invigoration of the World Health Organization. The climate catastrophe and emergency uh, is something which is receiving attention, but not enough is being done. We need to move to zero much quicker. Uh, there's a lot of tipping points, uh, which are we very near to approaching if we haven't already gone over them, which could lead to an escalation in uh, greenhouse gases of various types and an escalation of climate change. Like all other crises, these are great uh, destabilizes not only of people's lives, but they affect poor people much more than rich people. We've seen that even with COVID for all sorts of reasons. And that's even more true of climate change uh, and of other crises we face. It was true of the financial crisis as well. So I, I, would, I would focus on the climate emergency, stopping future financial crises, which are destabilizing. There's a big issue on fake news, uh, the cyber system, the stability of it, the dark web and all of those questions. I worry about antimicrobial resistance as a rising threat. Uh, a growing inequality behind all of this, uh, I think, is a threat to all of us because I think it will lead to rising populism and nationalism and increasingly unequal and unstable world. What is the difference between pandemics and all the other threats the world faces? Most of the others don't require the whole world to be part of the solution. You know, a very small number of countries could, for example, uh, create global financial stability. A very small number of countries could deal with antimicrobial, antibiotic resistance, because New York State consumes more antibiotics than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. Not all countries have an equal responsibility on climate change. Some have contributed by far the largest share of the greenhouse gases. Uh, particularly the rich countries. You know, for a long time, the UK accounted for half during the Industrial Revolution and after for over half of the world's pollution uh, of, of greenhouse gases. Then the US and others took over. Sub-Saharan Africa consumes less energy than the whole of New York State. Uh, so some countries become very, very important. Uh, and I believe that we shouldn't expect all countries to solve all problems. We need the actors that really matter and contribute the biggest share of the problem uh, to be the biggest share of the solution. So on climate change, it's about 12 countries that account for over 80% of uh, carbon and other emissions. And it's often cities and companies that we need to focus on as well. So we should apply, I think, a Pareto principle, which is like, let's focus on the 20% of the actors that cause 80% of the 
potential crisis and focus on their actions. And that, I think, gets one away from this knee-jerk reaction that when there's a problem, let's lift it up to the global level and try and get the UN or someone to solve it. And that often uh, leads to an impasse. We need to solve problems in our communities, uh, in our countries, and with constellations of other actors, cities, companies, uh, where they uh, occur. And a sense of empowerment in solving problems is, is absolutely vital. But until we create an effective global governance system for pandemics, we will not stop them. So I guess what you're saying is that the experience of the pandemic is kind of unique and it won't necessarily change the way we prepare for other future systemic crises. It is unique because pandemics are the only threat we face that can come from literally anywhere on Earth. But I think it is a very systemically important lesson for us. If we can learn to cooperate to deal with pandemics, I believe we would have learned to cooperate and we'll be much more effective at addressing climate change and all the other crises. In a sense, the others are simpler uh, to solve because a small, much smaller set of places could uh, account for the challenge. Uh, and one can begin to work out. I mean, climate change obviously is a very complex global system, so it's complex in others, other ways. But in terms of stopping emissions, uh, there's a much smaller set of, of actors. So my, my belief is that if we can solve pandemics, we, we would have actually gone a long, long way to learning to work together and to be able to solve other problems too. So the remedy has to be mindful of the other risks and the other future crises too. You've got to think about it as a whole. These types of global disasters certainly offer global opportunities to reset and recover, but it will be difficult. Governments and leaders have a tough road ahead of them. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pasha, produced by Gemma Ware of TC Weekly and Ozea Patel. From me, Inas Kosana, bye for now.